0: Good morning, ladies. I'm Kathy Gurley, and this morning we will be discussing Deuteronomy chapter 9. This chapter is full of descriptions and ideas that are alien to us. Think of molten images, giant people, cities with towering walls surrounding them, a mountain burning with fire, tablets of stone with God's writing on them, a guy who doesn't eat or drink for 40 days. Many of these are difficult for us to process with our 21st century mindset and may seem remote and disconnected from us. Yet, we also learn of people who are rebellious, stubborn, corrupt, sinful, people who continuously provoke the anger and wrath of God, They want to take credit in their own righteousness for things that God alone has done. And so here we begin to see how this chapter may relate to us today. Because we too are stubborn, rebellious, and continuously trying to take the glory for ourselves, things that God himself has done. We don't recognize it much of the time, but we need him desperately just as his people, the Israelites, needed him in their lives. So with this in mind, would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day. Thank you that you have given us this day and that you have given us your word and you have given us your Son, Jesus, our Savior, how we thank you. And as we think of Thanksgiving coming up, Lord, there's nothing we could ever be more thankful for than for our salvation in Jesus, that we have his righteousness and that he has borne all of your wrath that we deserved for our sins. Father, thank you for your indescribable gift. I pray now that you would... um, open our hearts and our minds to your words that you would make them come alive to each one of us and whatever we need to hear that you would speak your words to our hearts and may we just grow closer to you and more and more in love with your son Jesus and we pray in his name. Amen. So the verse we've been memorizing is from Deuteronomy 6, 7, 6. So let's start by saying this together. For you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the people who are on the face of the earth. Deuteronomy 7, 6. So we are chosen by God. We are his treasured possession. We're set apart by him to be holy. These truths are our starting point for today. If we not only believe this, but know the truth of it deep in our hearts, that the God of the universe has especially chosen us, that he holds us dear to himself as his treasured possession, then that's the fuel that powers our obedience to him. We want to keep this in mind today, who we are to God as we examine this chapter. So here's our outline for today. Um, Let's see if this will show. So we start with the first three um, verses. I call this marching orders and promises. And then the next three, not by your righteousness. And then 7 through 28, Moses tells the people all about their rebelliousness. Rebelliousness from the golden calf to their other many rebellions, and then finally how Moses has to intercede for them multiple times, and the ending, yet they are your people. So I'm gonna start by reading in Deuteronomy 9.1, in this first section, the mar- what I called Marching Orders and Promises, the first three verses. Here, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, cities fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim, whom you know and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak. Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God he will destroy them and subdue them before you so you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly as the lord has promised you so this chapter begins with hear o israel if you remember when we were in deuteronomy 6 the shema which the israelites recited daily and we actually memorized this as part of our memory verse at that time. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with your whole heart and with your whole soul and with your whole, all your might. So Moses uses this hear, O Israel, to say, listen up. This is important. Here's what's going to happen. Pay attention. And then Moses tells them exactly what is going to occur. Now, this starts a new speech of Moses, now the 11th month of the 40th year, and they actually go in during the first month of the following year. In between those times, Moses dies. Now, Israel had gotten to the promised land years ago, decades ago, in fact, at Kadesh Barnea, but due to their lack of faith, they could not enter. And now, decades later, nothing, not giant walls nor giant people, could prevent their entering because God was going to do it. They are going to cross the Jordan River. Today, in this, in this word, this Hebrew word, it means like at this time, like the time is close at hand. They will dispossess these nations from their cities and land. But how? Because here are the overwhelming facts against them. The cities are fortified with walls exceedingly tall, Up to heaven, it says, there's no way they can overcome these impregnable defenses. And even if they were able to get inside the cities, they will find that the people are giants. The Anakim, of whom they were so afraid nearly 40 years ago that they refused to enter in. And they know that no one can stand against the Anakim. But here is the good news. They, the Israelites, are not going to do it. God is crossing over before them. God is going before them as a consuming fire. God is going to destroy them. God is going to subdue these people ahead of the Israelites. Then the Israelites will be able to drive them out and destroy them, but only after God has gone ahead of them. It will happen just as the Lord has spoken. The land will be possessed because of God's power. Moses' intent here is to drive the people to look to the Lord and his help and not their own. Then later, when the victories come, they will ascribe them to God and accord to him all the honor and glory alone. Previously, the descriptions of the Enakim produced discouragement and despair of hope in God. Now, Moses' intent is to drive the people to God to encourage them to trust in him rather than to discourage them. David Guzik says that God is leading them into battles too big for them. No way they could survive unless they trust God. So God's commanding them to do something way bigger than what they themselves could do. So let's think about this. Do we look at situations and logic and reason them out well, I know I do this. Simply based on what we can see and then decide it's not possible. I know I've done this many times. Or do we ask God what he would have us do? Maybe we need to stretch our faith in this. So I'll give you one example where it turned out well. Our oldest daughter had narrowed her college choices down, but the one she truly wanted to attend was pretty expensive, out of budget. So we told her to pray for what God would have you do. Don't look at how far away it is. Don't look at the money. Just ask God, what do you believe he's telling you to do? So even though it seemed impossible to her, she did that. We would pay our part and then every semester she would get grants or scholarships or awards, whatever she got, we would get bills that would say like 12 cents credit. Like God didn't give her anything more than what she wanted but exactly what she needed. So then God does it, not her, not us, then he gets all the glory. So what situations have you perhaps been looking at from a human logic and reason standpoint? A job change, a move, some important decision when God may want to show you much more that he would like to do for you. Now, please do not misunderstand me. I'm not talking here about health, wealth, and prosperity gospel or anything like that. I'm simply inviting you to pray and allow God to tell you the agenda and allow him to receive glory from something that you perhaps would never have even imagined was possible. My encouragement to you is that when you come to an impasse, don't shut the door on God. Let God be God. Ask him what his will is and we all will find that he is greater, mightier, and more powerful than we ever could have imagined him to be. So God had called Israel into this impossible battle. Nothing they could ever do on their own power or strength. He lets them know realistically what they were up against. You know, on the other hand, they had to understand that the victory was with the Lord. And it was certain. It was too huge for them, but not too immense for God. God was calling them into a partnership with him. He will destroy the enemies, but also Israel would drive them out. And destroy them. So both of these are true. They were called to battle together with God. They were not to show mercy to their enemies, nor to become proud themselves. And t- God had told them way back in chapter 7 that they would clear away seven different nations. Do you remember the map And Patty had the little Moses up there on the map? that none of those nations would be able to stand before them. So it would be all due to the supernatural powers of God, nothing else. So they had these marvelous promises to bank on. Next section, not by your righteousness. Let's read verses 4 through 6. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, It is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess the land. Whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land. But because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out from before you. And that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. So at least three times we hear that the land is not given to them because of their righteousness. Twice we hear that it is because of the wickedness of these nations. And then a secondary factor is God's faithfulness to his covenant promises to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Leviticus 18 tells us that Israel must not defile themselves by the actions of these nations, for the land has become defiled because of them and has spewed out its inhabitants. God keeps telling them they must keep his statutes, not do any of these horrible things which have defiled the land. All these abominations. If you do any of these things, you must be cut off from your people, God says, because I am the Lord your God. In later chapters in Deuteronomy, we will study where a lot of their specific evils are actually iterated in those chapters, the sins of the Canaanites. But what is some of this wickedness? William Albright tells how the focus of the Canaanite religion was sexual. Archaeologists have discovered hundreds of nude female forms in sexual poses. And scripture recounts the practices of the inhabitants having their children pass through the fire. And it is my understanding that sometimes the children did not come out alive on the other side. Many years ago, my husband and I were in the ancient Italian city of Pompeii, which was destroyed by a volcano in 79 AD. At that time, our town of Zionsville was about the same size, about 10,000 people. That's how many people roughly were in Pompeii when it was destroyed. As we toured the town, we heard of brothels. We saw pornographic paintings on the walls of homes. We heard guides tell of what we would call X-rated bookstores, gambling houses, and erotic art. I kept trying in my mind to imagine our little town of Zionsville with all those immoral establishments in our town. How could those inhabitants raise their children in such an environment? I had been so anxious to visit this ancient historic city, and I was so eager to see its ruins. But as we walked, I was heart sick, and it hit me. I saw, perhaps, why God may have allowed it to be destroyed. Sin was so deeply entrenched there that years later, when excavations were taking place, multitudes of frescoes and paintings were covered up by their embarrassed discoverers due to their erotic content. I don't know what all the sins of the Canaanites were, but this experience helped me to understand how a site could become so depraved that its evil practices finally receive the judgment of God. So, God, in his justice, will have Israel destroy every vestige of sinful elements from the Canaanite towns. He makes good on his covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he alone will receive the glory. The Israelites will have absolutely nothing to brag about since obviously they haven't had much to do with any of this. God has told them what to do. He will go before them and prepare the way. He will subdue these enemy nations and give the land to his own people. They have no choice but to trust in God's words. They must rely totally on him and he receives the honor. There is nothing for them to boast about. There is another danger though. They could give in to pride in another way. They might acknowledge that it was God who destroyed all the enemies who were wicked, but they might think in their hearts that they must be better than these evil people, since God is taking away their land and giving it to them, Israel. They may think it's because they are God's special people and they deserve commendation and reward because of their superior status. Chuck Smith says, There's something perverse about our nature that we desire to have people think that we are more righteous than we really are. We like people to think that we are spiritual giants, that we really walk close to God. It is a temptation. We need people to see God, not us. It's so important in our lives when God works not to take credit, not to get spiritual pride or righteousness on our part, God tells Israel through Moses, Don't think you're so special, so holy, that you're more righteous than they are. No, it's because they are vile and wicked. Remember, you are stiff-necked, stubborn, and rebellious. Do not think in your heart, Moses says. Because pride begins in our heart long before the words ever come out of our mouth. I love Matthew, I think of 1, 2, 3, 4. Matthew twelve thirty-four, And it says, out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And unfortunately, that can be true. It has been for me many times where it wasn't such a good thing. Um, so Israel must not think that this is going to be anything that they did to earn by their own righteousness. This is a preview of us receiving our salvation by grace. When we receive anything from God, we're tempted to use it to glorify ourselves. But Israel must not do this in regard to the land, and we must not do it in regard to anything that we might receive. This is why Moses warns them so strongly and reminds them of their repeated rebellions against the Lord. Matthew Henry says Moses' design is to convince Israel of their own utter unworthiness to receive from God what he was about to confer on them. It's because of God's justice to punish the wickedness and because of his faithfulness to their fathers. God gave the covenant promises to the patriarchs, to them and their descendants, the land, and to be their God. He gave promises to Abraham in Genesis 17, promises to Isaac in Genesis 26, and promises to Jacob in Genesis 28. And they were all fairly similar. He'll give the land to them and to their descendants, and he will be their God. This gift of the land is by God's favor, not because Israel has done anything of their own accord to earn it. Calvin says that Moses wanted to show them that except for God's grace— They would not possess Canaan. They would inherit the land because God had adopted them, covenanted with them, so that they would persevere in his covenant and be more disposed to honor him. It would be disgraceful after all that God had done for them by his grace if they didn't surrender to his sovereignty and his rule. Moses repeatedly states God's great power so that they don't attribute anything to themselves but only to the excellent greatness of God. And then Moses starts reminding them about their rebellions. Do you know what word is repeated most in this chapter? You've read it, so you might think in your heart, I thought it might have been destroy, but it's actually the word out. I wonder if that's a warning as Israel hears from Moses of their past rebellions that they can be quickly driven out of this good land if they do not cling to the Lord. Let's hear what Moses tells them in verses 7 through 28. I'm not going to read everything. I'm going to just kind of skip down through here and read selected parts from the passage. But I will go in order. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath, and the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. When I went up the mountain to receive the tablets of the covenant that the Lord had made with you and all the words that the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire, the Lord said to me, Arise, go down quickly from here, for your people have acted corruptly. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made themselves a metal image. I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stubborn people. Let me alone that I may destroy them and blot out their name from under heaven, and I will make of you a nation mightier and greater than they. So I turned and came down from the mountain, and the mountain was burning with fire. And I looked, and behold, you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made yourself a golden calf. So I took hold of the two tablets and threw them out of my two hands and broke them before your eyes. I was afraid of the anger and the hot displeasure that the Lord bore against you so that he was ready to destroy you. And the Lord was so angry with Aaron that he was ready to destroy him, and I prayed for Aaron also at that time. Then I took the calf that you had made and burned it with fire and crushed it until it was as fine as dust. And I threw the dust of it into the brook that ran down from the mountain. At Taborah also, and at Massa, and at Kibroth Hata'ava, you provoked the Lord to wrath. And when the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea, saying, Go up and take possession of the land that I have given you, then you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God and did not believe him or obey his voice. You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day I knew you. I prayed to the Lord, O Lord God, do not destroy your people and your heritage, whom you have redeemed through your greatness, whom you have brought out of Egypt with a mighty hand. Remember your servants, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Do not regard the stubbornness of this people or their wickedness or their sin, lest the land from which you brought us say, because the Lord was not able to bring them into the land that he promised them, and because he hated them, he has brought them out to put them to death in the wilderness. So remember, Moses says, do not forget all their rebelliousness against the Lord. Moses reminds them of all the times that they failed, all their disobedience and rebellion, provoking God over and over, how Moses had to intercede more than once, or God would have wiped them out completely. And notice, Moses didn't exhibit any pride and say, okay, good, I can be my own nation from here on out. No, he cared about the people. They've been rebellious from day one. So he's telling them, don't get the big head. God's doing this because these cities are wicked. And besides, he promised Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's not because you're so great. The word stiff-necked. Israel, like an animal, would stiffen its neck against the yoke that God would put upon it. They would not submit to God's direction in their life. The stiff-necked character of Israel is demonstrated in all these past failures, their past rebellions. And Moses wants them to recognize their own weakness and trust instead in God. So the golden calf history. The golden calf at Horeb, or Sinai. God wanted to wipe them out and make a new nation from Moses. Now think about this. The fires that were burning on the mountain were to remind the people of the presence of God. He was in their midst. But these fires were burning even as they were making the golden calf and worshiping it. With the fires burning right there before their eyes. Moses broke the tablets. This shows his righteous indignation. It also symbolized that they broke God's covenant. They were out of God's favor and deserve only his wrath and punishment. Moses prayed for Aaron also. As the leader of the people, Aaron's sin was so bad, God was so angry with him and wanted to destroy him, so Moses prayed for him. Moses burned the idol, crushed it, ground it up, and threw it into the water. This would show that this, quote, God that they had made was nothing and could be easily destroyed and run down the sewer. They could see it no more. It was also to show, to actually completely annihilate this idol, just as they were supposed to do with the cities and the idols that they were going to encounter in the promised land. And also it gave an immediate consequence to their sin. Then Moses talks about your other rebellions. Taberah refers to an event in Numbers 11 where the people complained of their misfortunes and of adverse, adversity. God heard, he was angry, and his fire kindled and burned among them and consumed the outskirts of some of their camp. The people cried out to Moses, and of course, what does Moses do? He prays, and the fire died out, but it was called Taberah because of the burning of the fire. Massa and Meribah is in Exodus 17. The people quarreled with Moses saying, is the Lord among us or not? Hmm, did they forget to look up and see the cloud and the pillar of fire and the manna coming down every day? Moses struck the rock where God stood before them and water gushed out. So even though the people were complaining, God was still gracious to them and giving them water. Moses called it Massa and Meribah and rebuked the people for testing the Lord. Kibroth hata'avah. I had to practice that a few times. <laughs> people greedy for meat. So God sends them quail three feet deep, enough to bury a little toddler. He sends a severe plague against those who had greedy hearts and those people actually wound up being buried there. And then Kadesh Barnea, that was where they had been with the spies. Originally, when God commanded them to go up and possess the land that God had given to them, the people rebelled and didn't listen to his voice or believe him. Instead, they listened to the voices of men, the 10 out of the 12 spies. Just as Eve listened to the voice of a serpent, instead of what God had told her, just as I listen to the voices of logic and reason in my head at times instead of trusting in God, and just as you at times do too. Moses shows them their participation in the whole affair so they will be convicted and not be tempted to take any of the praise for themselves when God routes their enemies. And then Moses' intercession. This is such a wonderful part. But it's illustrated so well on page 52 in your lesson in that box. So I'm just going to say the three reasons that Mo- things that Moses intercedes for Israel, the big ones were because of God's pa- past faithfulness to them, because of God's past faithfulness to the patriarchs, and because of God's con- his concern for the glory of God's name and his reputation among the nations. So I'm sure you will discuss that more in your groups today. And finally, the last verse. Yet they are your people. For they are your people and your heritage whom you brought out by your great power and by your outstretched arm. So Moses says to God, your people, your inheritance, your mighty power, your outstretched arm, you brought. Moses asks for mercy on Israel because they were God's people. We saw in our lesson that we can seek the mercy and power of God through prayer by praying with that same heart and praying those same kind of reasons before the Lord because of God's past faithfulness, because of his past faithfulness to our forefathers, because of his own glory and reputation among the nations, because we are his people. This reminds me in the Psalms many times it will say, for your name's sake or for the glory of your name. And that's such a, a good reason to pray for the glory of God's name. So now I want to share something with you that I learned while studying this passage. You notice up here um, we have Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Many commentators have noticed that the lessons of this chapter parallels that of Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So when Israel takes possession of the land, it's because of God's power. Israel, in and of themselves, is utterly unsuited to inherit the promises, and we are the same. God wants us to know it's not us. Our history as the people of God and of each one of our individual lives makes it clear that it's not because of our righteousness that we belong to God, but only through his faithfulness to his promises and his good purposes, his loyalty to his people to whom he was bound by his covenant. They or we may break the covenant, but God never will. This chapter in Deuteronomy is a preview of salvation by grace. And it depicts how we must receive salvation from the hand of God alone, not by anything we can do in and of ourselves. Let's take a look at how these verses in Deuteronomy might line up with these two verses from Ephesians. So, I didn't didn't find any outline myself so I had to kind of make one and I don't know if it's really right but here's what I wound up doing so for the first section that I had the first three verses marching orders and promises I connected those with for by grace you have been saved by faith and then not by your righteousness that's verses four through six that we talked about I connected that with and it's not of yourselves it's the gift of God Then the whole section on their rebelliousness, that big section from seven through 28, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then the very last verse, yet they are your people, I went back to, for by grace you have been saved by faith. So again, I don't know if that's theologically correct, but that's how I put them. So it's by grace, That God goes before his people in this terrifying set of battles laid out before them in the first three verses. In his grace, he assures them of the victory by his power. His comforting grace gives them peace to know that he goes before them in every way, and they simply have to take him at his word and trust him in faith. In the next set of verses, we saw how God repeated three times it's not by their righteousness that they will enter the land. And so Ephesians 2.8, the second half of it, tells us it's not from ourselves, it's the gift of God. Let me read to you about how Israel's existence as a gift from God from Walter Brueggemann's book called The Land. Yahweh will not tolerate rival loyalties because he is a jealous God insisting on a singular and exclusive loyalty. This is not due to pettiness on Yahweh's part. It has to do with the character of Yahweh and the character of the other gods. Yahweh is the one who has created a people in history who know they are addressed by life-giving words that bestow the free gift of historical existence on radically undeserving people. Israel finds itself in history as one who had no right to exist, slaves become a historical community, sojourners become secured in the land. Slaves have no reason to expect to be addressed or called by name, surely not to be liberated. Wilderness wanderers have no reason to expect to be secured in the land. But it happens. None of it achieved, but all of it given. Yahweh is the Lord of gifted existence taken freely and without merit. And the way to sustain gifted existence is to say, stay singularly, that means uniquely and exclusively, with the gift giver who is Yahweh. So these former slaves, the Israelites, are given their existence, their history, their freedom as a free gift from God not because of anything at all they've done to earn it. As an extension of that, Elmer Martin's iterates the free gift of the land itself received by, Israel, by God's covenant people. In Exodus 6-8, God says about the promised land, I will give it to you for a possession. To the promise to bring Israel to the land, there is added the statement that the land itself is a gift it emphasizes the free act of grace on Yahweh's part. Israel brought to the situation that preci- Israel brought nothing to the situation that precipitated God's action. The initiative was with God and arose out of God's heart for his people. Therefore, the land, its vineyards, its olive trees, its cities, they all came into Israel's possession without Israel on her part planting vineyards or olive trees or building cities. Israel could not say, my power and the might of my own hand have gotten me this wealth. In Deuteronomy 8, we read last week, know then that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to occupy because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. The land is totally a gift, and she is totally dependent upon the giver. So in verse 7 through 28, remember your rebelliousness. I put this as a parallel to Ephesians, not by works, so that no one may boast. For Israel to hear Moses iterate their history of rebellion had to bring them to realize that it certainly could not possibly be due to their good works that God was bringing them into the land. They had provoked God to wrath repeatedly. They must be beginning to see that they desperately need God with them and without him they are hopeless. And finally, verse 29, yet they are thy people, even thine inheritance, whom thou hast brought out by thy great power and thine outstretched arm. So once again, we are back to, by grace you have been saved. For better or worse, these are God's redeemed people whom he loves and continues to guide and protect and bless. Now Tim Keller says, that the gospel message is this. We are more wicked than we ever dared to believe. But we are more loved and accepted in Christ than we ever dared to hope. These verses in Ephesians tell us what we need to know about the gospel, the good news about Jesus. For by grace you have been saved by faith. And that not of yourselves, it's the gift of God not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Some of you may not be sure what all this means, particularly for you individually. So let me attempt to tell you. Ephesians 2.1 says, You were dead in your trespasses and sins. Dead. If we do not know Jesus, that's what we are. We are dead. We can't call out for help because we're dead. We can't reach for a life preserver because we're dead. We can't do anything because we're dead. What are we to do? Why are we dead? We're dead because we have offended a holy, holy, holy God. That's the only attribute of God that is magnified to the third power: is His holiness, His purity, His separateness, His uniqueness above everything else. And this is the holy God before whom we all must stand. At one, one time we're going to all have to stand before Him. And so what are we going to do? We're dead. We need a rescuer. We need someone to come and rescue us. But God. I love those, verse, those words. In the scriptures, the words but God always gives so much hope. So here's some more verses from Ephesians 2. But God, being rich in mercy... Because of his great love which, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions, he made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. That sounds familiar, doesn't it? And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So here's the situation. You know, Christianity is so different from every other religion in the whole universe because every other religion has some sort of a god way high up there somewhere. And everyone is trying to do good works to try and please this god or placate him or make him not do bad things to them. And and everyone's trying to earn their way to their god, whatever it happens to be. Christianity is the only religion in which God comes down to us. God himself, the ruler of the universe, the one who created every cell in all of our bodies, the one who knows everything about us, the worst we've ever done, and yet loves us so incredibly much more than anyone on this earth ever could, He came down to us in the person of Jesus Christ. That's how much he wants to have fellowship with us. And so Jesus came to this earth as a man, as a person in a human body just like us, frail, weak. And he he went through every temptation that any one of us could ever go through, but he never, ever sinned. He lived this life perfectly. And we all know, every one of us knows, we, we can't, we don't do that. We all know things we've done. So many things we've done, things we don't want anyone to ever know. But Jesus knows all of those things. And he still loves us so very much. That thing that you don't ever want anyone to ever find out about. He knows that about you and he loves you incredibly much. So, Jesus came and was crucified. He died this cruel death on a Roman cross to bear the wrath of God for all of the sins. What we should have done, everything, all the punishment that we deserved, it all went on him. He bore God's wrath. He also lived a perfectly sinful life that we never could live. And so, how do we know that it was good enough what Jesus did to take all our punishment because God raised him from the dead. That's why Buddha, Mohammed, Joseph Smith, uh, nobody else, they're all dead. Jesus is alive. God raised him from the dead. That's the sign. That's how we know God accepted Jesus' death and him bearing all of our punishment for our sakes so that we could live. Now that's good enough. I mean, that's good, but there's more. There's even more. Jesus, who lived this perfectly, perfectly pure and holy and good life, he gives us all his righteousness. So we take that big black stuff, and we give it all to Jesus, and he gives us the sparkly, white, clean, all his righteousness. We had that verse, Mm. We had that verse today in our lesson. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For God made him who knew no sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us so that in him we could become the righteousness of God. That's the great exchange. Do you get it? It's awesome. This is what we need to let everyone know. This is what Jesus has done for us. And if you have not ever known that before, you can know that too. It's a free gift. It's a free gift. God gives this gift to us. There's nothing we do. It's not by our righteousness. It's not by any of our good works. Because we never could do them. And so if you have never had this before. You can. And there, God has brought you to this place. You've been studying his word. Reading his word. You've been hearing these truths. And he wants you to know him too. And actually, every single one of us need to hear, I need to hear this every single day so that I can go back and rejoice in this salvation that God has given to me that I don't deserve and that you don't deserve either. But that's how much he loves us. And if you aren't sure about all this, there are many women here today that would love to talk to you and answer questions for you so I'm going to pray and after I pray then Katie's going to lead us in one more wonderful worship song and you will certainly have people that you can talk to later but if you want to pray in your heart as I'm praying you certainly can do that too because God is just waiting for you to open your heart to him dear Lord Jesus we praise your holy name you are our holy holy God and yet you became just like one of us. You understand us, you know the worst about us, and you love us more than anyone else ever could. Thank you, Lord Jesus. Thank you. For we know that each one of us are sinners and that we deserve eternal death, and yet you've brought us and given us your life and And we can be with you forever and ever. And you've given us your Holy Spirit to be with us as a comforter, as an encourager, as a teacher so that we aren't left alone. And we thank you so much for your good gifts. And we just pray that as we go forth from this place that you would be the one to receive all glory and honor because it's because of you that we are here. And we pray in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.
1: dismiss